0: Well, good morning, everybody. It's so great to be with you. Welcome to New Hope Church, if you're right here on our campus or if you're joining us online. And I happen to see Miss Jamie right here. Can we just praise the Lord for Jamie? In your minute? We love you, lady. <laughs> it's so good to see you. Okay, so uh, my name is Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm just delighted to connect with you today. And uh, we're going to dive right into the Word of God. And I want to invite you to lean in with me as we do. Father, will you help us do that? Will you show us yourself? Will you uh, reveal your power and your majesty and your greatness to us, even as we spend time in this love letter called the Bible? And would you change us that when we step away from this moment, we will be even more like Christ? more eager for his purposes to unfold in our lives and in the world around us. Would you fill us with your spirit, God, we pray, and all of God's people said together, amen, amen. So right now it is true that our world is defined by power and kingdom, power and kingdom. We might throw control, authority in that, It is power and kingdom that seems to dominate everything. And so it is. We just have to look at the headlines. Putin, all right, Putin in in his thuggery invades Ukraine. We have China rattling its sabers. We have North Korea sending up missiles. In our world here, we've got Biden and Kennedy and DeSantis and Trump. King Charles is going to be coronated here in just a few weeks. We have bank bailouts and concerns relating to uh, the greater economy. And uh, if, if all of that's not enough, we've got Aaron Rodgers heading over to the Jets. All right? I mean, <laughs> that's a good thing, I suppose. Actually, I'm thinking Brett Favre went to the Jets. The trajectory here is Aaron Rodgers will be at the Vikings here in about two years. So, uh, anyway... <laughs> I love the responses here. Look, here's the deal. With regard to the power and kingdom and control and authority, it leaves us wondering, what is our place? It leaves us wondering, what role do we have? It puts us in a position of asking, asking, Lord, is there anything I can do about any of these things? Because all that I just described seems so much bigger than me, so beyond my reach, and yet such a big deal nonetheless. So what is my place in all of this? Now, these are not new questions, new wonderings, issues of power, issues of kingdom, issues of control. These aren't new, friends. It's not just for our era. These things go back all the way to the earliest days of the human narrative, back to the Garden of Eden, in which place we have God and we have humanity, Adam and Eve. And the question at the moment there is, who's in charge, God or humanity? And we know what happened when humanity wanted to say, well, we're in charge. And look at all the pain that that has created, right? We fast forward and we find uh, two brothers that are rivals. We have Jacob and Esau. Those of you who understand or know the stories from the book of Genesis will remember. And this was a huge conflict for uh, what would become the primary peoples upon whom we're gazing in the early parts of the Bible. We go forward further, and we come to uh, Moses, the great Moses, and he's going toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, the ruler of the most mighty empire in that part of the world in that epoch of time. Power, authority, who's in charge, who's in control. We go further, and we come to King Saul and his seemingly upstart, but deeply respected General David Ben-Jesse, who ultimately himself becomes king, King David, one of the world's most beloved and famous rulers. And yet the rivalry, the jealousy, the the, uh, posturing, particularly from Saul toward David, we go further still and we come to these dynamics of, of Babylon versus Judea. The Greeks versus the Egyptians. The Romans versus everyone. And then we step. Then we step into the place where Jesus is walking the dusty trails of Galilee and Judea. And we discover there's no end of factions unfolding. Unfolding. No end of drama to be found. And you have, at that point in time, you have have the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Hellenists and the Zealots, and you have Rome and the Jews. And it's no small wonder that the people living in that land, what you and I might call the, the people of God have been for centuries longing for someone to come and just take matters of power and authority and might and kingdom and bring it all together, make it all new, put it all into its proper place. That one that had been longed for was the Messiah, the the Christos, the anointed one who could come and repair and restore. Who might that be? Well, the people of old, they they certainly did long for this. As a matter of fact, according to the prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, this gives you a sense of all the longing that everyone uh, had within them going through centuries. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the other kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That was the longing of the people of Israel. And then when Jesus does step onto the scene, with that as part of the backdrop, everyone was hoping that one might run out the oppressors, reestablish the era of Israel's global prominence, and bring peace and shalom to all that is. This was the expectation. This was the hope. And you know what? Jesus did show up, the one that today we know is the Messiah and the Christ. And when he showed up on the scene, do you know what he did? He only fueled the aspirations that the people had, the longings that that existed for someone to come and make all things new and bring order to all the conflict, the power, the kingdoms, the might, the control. And so it is in the Gospel of Matthew, we uh, find these words from the lips of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, you'll likely see them here in front of you. Listen to these words, Matthew chapter 4, and uh, particularly if you'll note with me, verses 23 and following, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. But notice verse 23, it says there, what he was doing in taking care of all of these needs and meeting with all these people, what he was doing was proclaiming the good news of a kingdom. A kingdom that's coming. A kingdom that he's ushering in. A kingdom that's going to be established. A kingdom that's going to be very Different than anything else that the world would have to offer. And so, indeed, he shows up on the scene. He shows up on the scene. And with those words that he says there, the kingdom is coming. And with those actions that he puts forward there, healing and peace and joy and care, With all of that, you can imagine that the crowds are thinking, oh, finally, someone has come. Finally, we have opportunity for peace, for prosperity, for well-being, for rest, for hope. And if indeed it is in him, maybe he will run out the Romans. Maybe he will inaugurate a new golden era for our people. Maybe, indeed, all things will be new. Power, kingdoms, control, dominance. These are the things that have marked our world since time began. The earliest moments of the human drama. And Jesus comes along as the only answer, the only answer to all of that. On a certain day, Jesus and his disciples are gathered. They've been with crowds for weeks. And it falls upon Jesus to pull his guys away and to hole up in a certain quiet place. And they start to pepper him with questions. Questions about all this kingdom talk. Questions about authority and power. Questions regarding who's in charge, because the religious leaders sure are harassing you, Lord. Are they in charge or are you? Questions about how far the good news is going to go because we're taking over here to the Gentiles. Them are Romans, Jesus. Is that okay? These questions are real for Jesus and his disciples. And so Jesus answers these questions by asking a question. And we see it in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 4. And if you have your Bible, you might look there with me. Mark chapter 4. Jesus asks a question. God asks a question. And here is the question. Look with me, beginning in verse 30. Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of the seeds on earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now let me offer a couple of observations, two or three actually. And you might just sit in these, absorb them. They're very helpful. They're very important. Here's the first one regarding the mustard seed. Many of us who are familiar with this passage or familiar with the gospel records, we've heard about the mustard seed, the smallest of the seeds. And that's more proverbial than actual. Nonetheless, it is a very tiny seed, and there were you should know, a couple of kinds of mustard seeds common in that era and in that region. One of them gave way to a large tree. The other one gave way to a great big shrub. It's that one that Jesus is speaking of, most likely right here. And the reason I say that is because of his reference to the garden plants. Uh, he's using the language of a, of, of a garden as opposed to, say, a forest. And so, not that it matters a whole lot. Either way, the point is the same. He's saying that this tiny, this tiny seed is put into the ground, and it grows. And, and if it is, in fact, the, the garden variety, if you'll pardon my, my simple pun there, if it is that, then uh, we should know that its breadth and its height would be approximately 10 to 15 feet. And it's more of a shrub, a big bush but more than sufficient for the birds to come and land in the branches and to find shade, to find rest. So just understand, when we are thinking mustard seed, this is what's being spoken of. A second observation relates to those birds I just referenced and that Jesus speaks of. Please hear me. This is extremely important and is one of the keys to where we're going in these few minutes. The Goal of the mustard seed is not itself growth. The goal is not its own growth. The goal is to provide shelter, shade, rest, protection for others, in this case, these birds. So don't miss the detail about the birds nesting in these branches, The goal here isn't the the growth of the plant. The goal is something beyond the plant itself, the care for others. Again, in this case, the birds. Now, another observation I want to make relates to the kingdom of God. Jesus says, with what shall we compare the kingdom of God? What is that? We've talked a lot about this over the years from this platform. And I have tended to define simply the kingdom of God as as that uh, uh, it, it is God's eternal and sovereign rule made manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when you correlate that to the to the shrubs here, to the mustard seed, okay, so imagine the logic with me. Here we go. You take this tiniest of seeds, you plant it in the soil. It gives way to a a rather uh, meaningful bush, sufficient enough to provide shelter, shade, and rest. And therefore, with that in mind, we conclude that the kingdom of God, hear me now, and you'll see this in front of you here, the kingdom of God is... God's eternal sovereign rule, embodied in the person and work of Jesus, and by the way, you and me as His disciples. Did you hear that? So it is embodied in you as well and in me. all right? The kingdom of God embodied in the person and work of Jesus and us. Notice it starts small. It, gro- it starts small, it grows gradually. it becomes larger and provides ultimate renewal and rest. Now, I want you to notice, stay with me there on that last few, few words. If you're watching as part of our online community, you keep looking there with me, those last few words, it becomes large, it provides ultimate renewal and rest. That's the mission and the purpose of God's kingdom. This rest is a huge factor. It's an important theme throughout all of God's Word. We see it in Genesis chapter 1 where we have have God himself at the end of it. And he he says, now he's going to take a day off and rest. God is going to rest. And then that theme appears time and time and time again of God wanting to rest his people. And even Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11 says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. For I am gentle and lowly of heart, he says. And I want you to hear me. This embodiment of Jesus' work and, and person in and through us as His followers redeemed and washed in His blood, living out the kingdom of God. Listen now, it's so important what I'm about to say. This is our attitude. This is our posture. This is our lifestyle. We want to know what is the kingdom of God. It is us living out Jesus's life. It is us living out Jesus's values. And what we're seeing here when Jesus says, with what shall we compare the kingdom of God? It it starts small. It grows gradually. It becomes larger. And it gives way to that which provides renewal and rest. Let me ask you a question. Are you hearing language of swords and tanks? Are you hearing language of control and of lording oneself over another. No. Not in this kingdom. Did you hear that? Not in this kingdom. So there are some real implications for us who are disciples of Jesus. When you and I think about Jesus and power and glory and kingdom and might. What we are invited to consider are matters of rest and renewal as that which is provided. Oh, but that flies right in the face of what the world tells us. Jesus himself in Mark chapter 10, he says, The world, the Gentile world, the the broader ethnos, he says, that is to say the world beyond God's people, their mentality is they have to lord themselves over everyone. They're all about power. And that is a striking difference to the way of Jesus. the way of Jesus Uh, my friend dr. Daryl Bach world-renowned New Testament scholar wonderful godly man he offers this wisdom I want you to lean into these words here pay attention here he says this since the days of Constantine let me stop a moment Uh, in the uh, 4th century AD, there was a Roman Caesar named Constantine who allegedly became a Christian after a great battle. And I say allegedly because there's quite a bit of myth built up around whether that actually happened to him. But what did in fact happen to him was he was so impressed by the person of Jesus, and the movement of the church and the gospel. Notice this. He declared it the official religion of the Roman Empire. So from that point on, that was in the 300s, from that point on, since the days of Constantine, I want you to see this. The church has struggled with her identity by thinking that a text like this what do we say is the kingdom of God? By thinking that a text like this is a call to exercise increasing power. We have struggled with this for centuries as a church. But Dr. Bach goes on and he says, The way of discipleship, however, is the way of service and sacrifice. The church is not called to the sword or power, but to service. Now, I asked my friends here to leave that up for another bit. I want you to really look with me those last words. Let's go back. The way of discipleship, however, is not, or I'm sorry, however, is the way of service and sacrifice. The church is not called to the sword or power, but to service. But I want to say to you, thank you guys. I want to say to you, hear me now, wherever you are right now. The church in the United States... The evangelical movement at least in the West if you talk to the so-called nuns the people with no religious interest or affiliation or the so-called duns the people that are just over it all and you ask them about the church in our day and age in their minds it is nothing more than about power and might authority and control and you know this because you talk to these people they sit at your dinner table and you work with them at the office and you teach them in the classrooms somehow we have a reputation of carrying the sword and the spear and the shield and Maybe there's something about our Americanism that adds to it because we're independent-minded and we pull ourselves up from our bootstraps. And there's something wonderful about that kind of tone, but like a whole lot of things, even that which can be good has a very dark side. And the dark side for us is the church doesn't, Act differently than the world when it comes to power. And so when Jesus says, With what shall we compare the kingdom of God? Notice he didn't put forward, Here's a sword, here's a spear, here's my shield, here's my war plan. He said, Well, it's like this mustard seed tiny and it gets put in the ground and it grows and guess what it then blesses because the birds of the air can come and nest in it and that evokes by the way the whole notion of shelter and safety and protection and care and home and rest now don't don't misunderstand me church listen to me here don't misunderstand me please hear me Jesus Christ will come back in triumphant victory and glory and power he is going to do that the book of Revelation Revelation chapter 19 puts it this way we've talked about this many times And allow me just to reiterate it here. Revelation 19, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is coming in power and glory. And by the way, that could be sooner than we imagine. So so don't misunderstand me here. He will come and He will rule and He will be tough and righteous and just. But right now, to help prepare a broken world for his arrival so there can be more receptivity rather than rebellion the kingdom plan is more like this listen to the words of the apostle paul romans chapter 14 some of you may be surprised here because after all this is romans it's the great theological treatise of the Bible, the Apostle Paul being the greatest theologian that we have ever seen, other than, of course, our Lord himself. And so we expect he's going to say something really substantive here, and he's going to give great insight into kingdom And we might imagine that it's going to absolutely play into our own personal expectations of kingdom and power. But here's what the Apostle Paul says, Romans chapter 14. I want you to look with me. Verse, let's see here. Verse 17, the kingdom of God. "...is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us, notice this, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual tearing down and destruction." Is that what it says? No. Makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. We should take those words, put them on a post it note, stick them to our screens every time we pull up Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and truth. The prophet Isaiah and Isaiah. Chapter 32 gives still more vision about Jesus' kingdom principles. It's a very favored passage for me. I've shared this. You men will recall last fall, early last fall, late last summer, I shared this with you as we were together one afternoon. Isaiah 32, verse 1 and 2 Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. This is a prophecy about our Lord Jesus, written 700 years before he shows up on the scene. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. By princes, we're talking all of us who are in alignment with his reign and rule. Women and men, the royal house, And notice what it says here. He will reign in righteousness. With him we will rule justly. And then notice verse 2. This is so important, friends. Please hear me. Please don't miss this. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. That is you. That is me. This is our call as disciples. That we be people that don't provide pain, but provide shade. That don't sow confusion, but peace. That those who are thirsty and weary are replenished by your presence and mine. That ultimately... They can rest and be protected, just like the birds in the bush. Shelter, protection, shade, rest. Come unto me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest." And what you don't see in that Romans 14 passage or in the Isaiah 32 passage, you don't see the way of the kingdom is power and image and control and protectionism and hate and anger and bullying no all oh, that we would be that you and I would be as followers of Jesus bearers of shade, replenishment, nurture, hope, grace, mercy, and love. The smallest seed given away to growth that provides all of those things and more. As I wrap up here i want to share with you just some very simple uh, reflections on how we go forward as kingdom people and i you might write these down and uh, i'll just give some brief comment on them first of all remember you are a kingdom citizen if you are a follower of jesus So if you say, whatever language you use, if you say, I'm born again, if you say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, if you say, I have repented of my sins and confessed Him as as Savior and Lord, whatever language you use to describe the reality that Jesus has transformed your life and owns you and is your God and King and Savior, you are a citizen of His kingdom. The Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. We are citizens of a better realm. Unless we wonder how did that come about, let us remember our Lord Jesus living a sinless life, betrayed by a friend, arrested by the authorities, tried by a bunch of religious prudes, crucified on a Roman cross where he died shedding his blood so your sins and mine could be paid for. Three days later, he rose from the dead, And then he ascended into the heavenly places and he sits at the right hand of his Father interceding for his kingdom citizens. That's you and me who claim Christ as our Lord and Savior. And as we've already established, one day he's going to return in glory. And because of these things, sin and death and the devil, and listen to me, our need to carry the sword and beat our drums and our chest and scream at everybody, those things no longer have the final word. And since they no longer have the final word, we get to live the lives of glorious grace, hope, shade and shelter and replenishment to everyone who crosses our pathway. Number two, think small. This is the most anti-Western American Minnesotan, upper Midwest, tough as nails, former Scandinavian people. I mean, I guess we are Scandinavian. I'm Norwegian, so I'm a Viking. But when you, th- this is the antithesis of how we've been raised. But think small, like the seed. Moments of obedience. Simple moments of obedience. A simple conversation filled with grace. A gift of kindness. Here and there and elsewhere. Jesus' love. Having an imagination for helping people just move one degree closer to him. Moving toward Jesus, taking others with us just by one degree at a time. Think small. And here's the beauty of this. Listen to me, dear ones. When you and I think small, guess what? Now, living out kingdom is accessible for you and me. Because what happens is we're too easily teased to think it's got to be big. And honestly, that's overwhelming. And I'm tired. How about you? But the small moment, the small or simple word goes a long way. It goes further. Number three, don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of our eternal hope and glory. Don't lose sight of it. These are hard days. There are thugs that rule the world. The economy's fragile. Xenophobia remains real. Misogyny seems to be the delight of the day. Ladies, you know that's true. Kids are being led to believe that scarring their bodies to become something other than God's intention is normal and okay. We're in a broken and messy world, friends. And it's desperate, desperate for someone to come along and be just and be righteous, but also just be good. But that's wearisome and it's hard. And it's going to be costly. Don't lose sight of our eternal hope and glory. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Victory will come. But for now, we labor quietly, boldly, simply, with humility, gently, And number four, number four, pray kingdom prayers. Pray kingdom prayers. I wanted to land on this. It's very intentional. Pray kingdom prayers. Now, I want to invite you to listen to me here very carefully. Wherever you are, please hear me. Because what I'm about to say needs to be said. It's so important. We are really good about praying for the health and prosperity of the people we love. My father, he's having hip replacement surgery on Wednesday. And you bet I've been praying for him. He's the greatest man alive. He's also the bionic man. He's got two knees, two new shoulders. He's got a new ankle that he doesn't like. And now he's getting ready to have hip replacement. And our family and friends are figuring out ways to support him. So you bet I'm praying for his health and prosperity, for his well-being. But here's my fear. Listen to me. We're really good at that. And then we stop there. And I'm telling you, friends, this world is going to hell quicker than we can blink. It is so broken, so needy. We have got to pray kingdom prayers and move past Aunt Maud's hangnail is hurting and start praying for the light of Jesus to shine more brightly moment by moment by moment and to start praying that the God of heaven and earth would raise up a church that is not a bully but has the gentle and lowly spirit of a courageous and sacrificial king and that we will be an other-centered people that are determined to put ourselves in the gap to share the story of this Savior. We've got to pray kingdom prayers. We've got to pray that God's Spirit would unleash itself in a fresh way, not only in this church family, but in all the churches around us. We've got to pray. We've got to plead. We've got to pound the floor or the bed or the chair or wherever it is we are on bended knee and just demand if we could be so bold that our king would move. So may we move past the health and prosperity prayers as important as they are toward the still greater eternal cause. Because here's the deal. If my father gets a hip or not, That's a temporal issue, but there is eternity at stake for every human being. Are we praying with that in mind? And if we're going to be kingdom people, that's exactly what we need to do. Let me ask you to stand with me. And indeed, just hear these words as a simple prayer right now. Spirit of God, breathe on your church. Spirit of God, breathe on your church. Pour out your presence. Speak through your word. We pray in every nation. Among every ethnos Christ be known. Our hope, our salvation. Christ our king and him alone. That's power. That's authority. That is the kingdom in which we stand.